We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to another episode of the Intelligent Squared podcast. In this episode, we feature Gemma Milne, who is a tech journalist and the author of a new book titled Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. And she was in conversation with Carl Miller of the think tank Demos. The episode is, as it sounds, about the dangers of hype, but also its potential usefulness, especially in our current era of the coronavirus pandemic. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. And if you do, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Hello, I'm Carl Miller, Research Director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at the Think Tank Demos. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Gemma Milne, tech journalist and author of Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. Gemma, hello. Hi, thanks for having me, Carl. So Gemma, hype, what is it? Oh, that's one of the big questions, actually, that I thought would be easy to answer in the book, but turned out to be quite complex in some ways. Everyone seems to have a different definition. Definitions are always difficult, aren't they? Yeah, it's. I think it's because it's also a word that has quite a lot of emotion in it. People who kind of consider themselves relatively, shall we say, well-informed tend to think of hype as something that, you know, they couldn't possibly fall for. It's something that those other people get caught up in and there's a sense of frustration and anger around this idea of hype. But really when you, I mean, if you look up a a dictionary definition, it's something along the lines of exaggerated publicity or using advertising to capture people's attention around an idea or a product. So really it's about, shall we say, loud marketing. And you know, one of the things that I started with with the book was a, was personally a sense of frustration. You know, there's so much hype out there. We need to find a way of, you know, getting to grips with it better, understanding it better, busting it. And actually, over the course of researching it, I kind of came to become its friend, shall we say, and think of it more as a tool that we need to understand better and, and reconcile with, as opposed to something that we just need to banish because we do need it a lot as well as 
sometimes we don't. <laughs> and, and especially in your world of kind of technology and science journalism, hype is a kind of for, forever kind of on the shoulder of the new kind of technologies and releases and breakthroughs and revolutionary reformations of the things that you try and cover. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's needed, right? A lot of the things that are happening at the forefront of science and tech are quite difficult to explain. You need to get people on board with, particularly funders and governments, as well as the general public. So hype is required to cut through the noise of innovation. There's so much happening. But at the same time, with so much at stake, particularly when it comes to to money and regulation, hype can derail that process in many ways. And that's kind of, I suppose, the focus of the book is how and why is hype used and can the understanding of the usage of hype prevent us from getting caught up in in ways in which it's not really helpful helpful for society but you know at the end of the day there's we, we all know about this with online information it's so difficult for people to see what you're trying to say particularly if you're trying to do things in a kosher way and so uh, hype i think is an interesting tool too to make sure that the right stuff surfaces and amongst the drivel so, you know, without kind of just descending into dictionary definition, it's this idea of of the easy answer of technology saving us, of kind of solutionism, as as, as you call it in one moment, mm. um, of of kind mm. of um, easy big answers to difficult complex problems. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's an element of simplicity there. I mean, the way I've kind of got it in the book, the little analogy that I use is, is I call it accidental fooling. So it's not when people are trying to deliberately mislead, which, you know, is lying. Um, it's more that people are trying to capture attention. And when the message that they use is taken out of context, people end up with the wrong idea. So yes, sometimes that's using too much simplicity. Sometimes that's using a certain word that captures a certain emotion that kind of gets people thinking the wrong thing about certain things. Um, sometimes it's disassociating. Sometimes it's pushing responsibility in different ways. Um, but I suppose at the crux of it, it's an oversimplified narrative that has people thinking something that's not quite right. And, and that's kind of why I suppose the solution that I try and put forward is you know, critical thinking, systems thinking, allowing ourselves to be okay with not having things oversimplified all the time, because sometimes that shortcut can essentially take you in the wrong direction. I mean, I, I reading the book, I, I often felt the kind of hype touched on on something really fundamental, this kind of almost this collision between kind of human exuberance and the kind of cold edges of science. You know, on the kind of one hand, you know, this kind of desire for kind of easy narratives, kind of primary colour fixes, mm -hmm. and on the other, simply a universe which is which is all too often far too complicated for all of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you if you look at, for instance, the batteries chapter, I mean, that's one of the ones that I really dive into this idea of, you know, the reality of this world is that there it's a balancing act. There isn't a, a holy grail of batteries. There isn't one answer to the complex question of how do we power our world. And yet it seems that if you look at the narratives around the, the kind of new technologies are put forward, words like holy grail or breakthrough or, or all these things, it is like we're trying to essentially say, we found the answer. We found the singular thing that is going to save us all. Um, you know, you mentioned tech will save us earlier on. And for me, I think it's difficult because we kind of all know that there's an issue with sort of absolutist ideas. I mean, you only have to look at politics right now to see what happens when you start saying, which side are you on? Or is this right or wrong and not allowing any gray area in the middle? But at the same time, understanding that people can find 
complexity very difficult to handle. And especially if you're not in a job that requires having to try and get to grips with the, the nitty gritty of what's going on in whatever AI or batteries or so on and so forth. That's my job at the end of the day. And that's the job of researchers like yourself. So it's how do we kind of balance or think about or be more comfortable with nuance and with allowing ourselves to frankly not really know the straight answer not ask oversimplified questions like is ai good or bad i mean that just doesn't mean anything and try and kind of if we see narratives that play into that absolutist you know one side or the other oversimplified kind of idealistic idea about the future of humanity not push it to one side and say that's silly, but rather try and understand the context by which that message has been put out and try and look a little bit deeper and not sort of take it at face value. And I appreciate that's a really, that's quite a lot to ask of people. I get that. But my point I want to make, in the, I've tried to make in the book is that it's all our responsibility. You know, if we want a world that moves forward in the way that's best for all and you know this kind of idealistic idea of the future, we all need to play a better role in making sure that information is shared better. And, you know, we, it doesn't matter if you don't work in tech, you know, playing a role as a voter or as a citizen or as a, you know, retweeter of information, buying into oversimplified narratives and, and wanting this absolutist answer, I argue, can be dangerous. And there's lots of kind of very meaty areas of science and tech which you, you tackle in the book, which we'll turn to in just a moment. But before we do, let's, let's just dwell for a second on the world we're living in now. I mean, it's impossible to ignore the fact that this interview would normally have been done in a recording studio. And of course, at the moment, it isn't. We're, we're sat in our, yep. our living rooms. Um, and there's, there are probably not more people ever in history than right now currently turning to science and technology to protect them uh, and for some kind of answer. Normal people that are kind of dealing with complexity, you know, and peering at epidemiological models and, and, and you know, infection curves and, and all, all manner of things related to coronavirus. Um, are we living through a moment of, um, of, of kind of totally unprecedented hype as well then? Hmm, I think there's sort of two ways to think about hype and science right now. One side is I actually think we have a lack of hype or rather hype as a tool I don't think is being wielded in a very good way. And what I mean by that is a lot of the time when you see hype in a particular area, it normally kind of centers around one prevailing narrative. So for instance, if it was an AI, it would be, you know, robots are going to steal our jobs, for instance. That's a prevailing narrative that a lot of people hear and know and repeat, regardless of its, of its accuracy and its nuance. Whereas when it comes to coronavirus, there doesn't really seem to be any prevailing narratives that are useful in any way. You know, stay at home isn't isn't really a narrative. It's not really a hyped up narrative. And it's also kind of confusing because it's kind of like stay at home, but it depends. Um, so I think in some sense this, you know, understanding hype as a tool, or if you want to be even broader, understanding the world of marketing and advertising and being heard on the internet and, you know, how you shift attitudes and behavior accordingly, I personally don't think is being wielded in a very efficient way. But then on the other side, you know, I would normally argue for, you know, explain the system, explain the nuance, you know, don't discredit or, uh, you know, patronize your audience by oversimplifying, let them into the difficulties and the complexities of this thing that you're trying to explain. With coronavirus, there's so much information, new information coming out every day that it becomes quite a difficult challenge. And one of the kind of back and forth 
problems or I guess continuums that you find yourself in, particularly when you're a science writer, is to what extent should you explain the depth of complexity of an idea? Because if you go too deep and don't do it you know, well, you lose people and the, the message is not well communicated. On the other hand, if you, you know, rely on trust and they don't have trust, then you also lose the message too. So if you, you know, take the example of the Oxford study that's been really controversial over the last um, couple of weeks where there was a preprint put out that sort of suggested that over half the population had been infected and then, it, you know, the, the FT covered it. You know, it got a lot of hype around that idea of 50% of the population has been infected and then it was later sort of debunked by a group of scientists who wrote a, a response to it. And there was a lot of discussion around, you know, should the scientists have even put out this paper in the first place if there was issues with it and so on and so forth. But what was lacking was... A discussion around, well, this is how science is done. And if you want science to be done in the open, which is what most people would argue for, they don't want it to be done behind closed doors without the public knowing, then you run the risk of things being taken out of context, misunderstood, misconstrued, and then anger and frustration being pointed in my opinion, in the wrong direction. We shouldn't not preprint papers. We should be better at communicating the fact that preprints are not final papers and the idea that a scientific paper is not ultimate truth, right? So you can kind of, I suppose, think about hype in this, shall we say, coronavirus era without you know, wanting to diminish it as do we lean in to the fact that hype essentially is a quite a good shortcut and can get people on board and can sometimes act as a placebo of sorts, kind of almost trick people in to doing the thing that you want them to do, which is, you know, I suppose what advertisers are trying to do all the time. Or do we lean into trying to somehow explain the complexity of how science is done, how epidemiology is done, um, how complex it is to make decisions around this and hope that people really understand every single nuance of that? You know, and I don't know the answer. Both of those options are really, really hard. But at the moment, we're sort of sitting somewhere in the middle and it's causing a whole load of confusion because of this lack of prevailing narrative. So I'm not sure we're in an era of hype. I think we're in an era of not everyone really understanding how hype works. And that that is an issue when you have a, you know, something like coronavirus is essentially the example that for you know it sounds a bit self-serving but it kind of proves the point that I'm trying to make that if we don't if we jump to conclusions and we don't try and understand things at a deeper level and be okay with conflicting narratives look what happens lack of information misunderstanding and some people taking actions that are incorrect well let's come back to coronavirus because I mean I, th- I think alongside hype of course is the kind of evil twins of kind of mir- flat out disinformation conspiracy theorizing miracle cures yeah. which I know are different but seem to have the same kind of um, or some common human roots to them or, or, or human frailties mm-hmm. at least um, so we, let's jump back because I'm, 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 I think there's an enormous amount that you can do to help anyone listening to this um, navigate the kind of rocky waters of science and pseudoscience in the um, in the kind of days and weeks to come. But um, it, of course, you know, coronavirus wasn't the first place where hype existed, and 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 it won't be the last. Sure. Um, so so let's let's look at some of the other examples which in the book you kind of like. Um, you, you, you kind of travel with the reader through um, trying to kind of deconstruct hype in its different forms and effects. Let's begin with farming. You know, I, I thought a brilliant mm-hmm. narrative kind of stretching from eco damage to alternative protein and cultured meat to vertical farms. So 
So how, how did you see hype working here? And what, what, what was it actually doing, do you think, to the field? So for me, I the prevailing narrative that I was finding was a, a sort of tech will save us. You know, we can feed the world if only we can utilize tech in farming. And you see this quite a lot in um, the sort of agri-tech startup space where you got to remember, if you're working in the farming industry, we're, we're talking about feeding people. And that can both mean hunger, feeding people who are hungry. So it's obviously linked with poverty and, uh, you know, severe humanitarian issues. But it can also be, mean, you know, delivering foods from A to B in the centre of London to people who are very well off. So you have this kind of industry that has you know, wealth, capitalism and so on and so forth, but also has um, a humanitarian element to it. And you you see kind of companies within this, particularly startups, using the same narrative, regardless of which side they're on, if that makes sense. So you see, for instance, vertical farming startups talking about feeding the world, and, you know, playing this very social role in society when in actual fact if you really look at the nitty gritty of what's going on they're feeding wealthy people in cities most of the time and so you have this kind of frustrating narrative where it's not you're not separating the the needy from the <laughs> from those who just want and so this idea of tech will save us becomes a, I kind of argue a crutch in the sense that we're not actually looking at the system by which farming works and we're not looking at agriculture as a whole instead we're kind of going there's these issues that we keep hearing about people are hungry the soil's not good you know it's not sustainable we can't you know we can't feed whatever it is, 9 billion people by 2050, these kind of stats and whatnot are brought up and then kind of going, ah, but I know the sort of, the the startups are working on this and we've got tech to kind of help us. We can use a digital farming app. We can so on and so forth. And I sort of see these technologies as great, amazing innovations that people have invented, but sometimes acting as a bit of a, shall we say, band-aid on a gaping wound. And where I see the hype playing a role here is that it's, preventing people from kind of being a bit more critical about the system as a whole and also their personal role in it. So you are seeing, you know, massive moves in terms of people being more vegan or being more thoughtful about where they buy food, but hard conversations such as should we actually be paying more for food is not something you hear often because it's it's a it brings the eater <laughs> the consumer into the conversation as opposed to kind of pushing things to one side and saying that's being sorted over there so here i see the role of hype as essentially maintaining a status quo by not having individuals try and change their behavior accordingly so we we kind of hopefully cast Sorry. our eyes out looking for for the kind of app that will save us or the 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 kilometer high vertical farm rather than having difficult conversations around redesigning entire industry Sure. And even, I mean, even the idea of, you know, the farming system is broken. You hear this quite a lot. And I would argue that the farming system isn't actually broken. The farming system works very, very well based on the kind of values upon which it was built. But if you want a farming system that is better for the environment, feeds people more sustainably, is better for everyone's health, whether that's hunger or obesity or whatever, it's not about trying to fix a broken system, but it's rather redesigning a system with different values inherent in in its actual creation. And again, this idea of, you know, tech will save this broken system, tech will fix it. We're not having conversations around, well, actually, if we value food in different ways, we have to start thinking about different prices for things, where we buy things, what we eat, so on and so forth, which is very different from 
an app or a different way of growing things. They're all part of one system. But if we don't have the conversations about our own individual responsibility alongside the technologies that can try and help redesign a new system, we're missing a big trick and we're not talking about what that redesign actually looks like in practice. What was your state of mind, Gemma, when you began to write the book? I mean, as someone who, you know, professionally, I suppose, skewers and cuts through hype, had you just reached a point where where you were just kind of unbelievably frustrated with all of the kind of superlative ridden press releases that you were no doubt receiving? I would say that's where I started for sure. The book came from a place of frustration, but I had to have quite a lot of harsh conversations with myself, frankly, while I was writing it because I was, I was failing to see things because of that frustration. And you know, before I uh, did my current job in sort of writing and journalism, I worked in marketing. I worked for Ogilvy. So I also know the power of marketing and how it can be good sometimes. And I think I was I was being a little bit too cynical, shall we say. That doesn't mean that the book is not written from a critical lens and that I don't think of things critically. But I think I kind of went from a sort of state of being like, Ugh, why are they saying that? To being like, okay, I kind of understand why they're doing that. Mm, is there a better way you could have done that? Or, you know, I understand the need to try and get the money. You know, it, it's, it's a sort of it's trying to see the context by which certain narratives are being used. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. You know, it's my opinion. That I think that would be better if we all did that. And I tried to practice it myself as much as possible. It's not always easy. But I definitely started from a, a space of frustration and anger. And now it's kind of a Oh, I kind of get it, but can we all be a bit more responsible, please? <laughs> it's a slightly more kind of, it, it's, it depends and okay, I kind of get it sort of perspective. Although that doesn't mean that if I get a press release in my inbox that's very hypey, I don't sort of either immediately delete it or reply and challenge <laughs> challenge the narrative being used. So Gemma, hype's kind of a, a human creation, isn't it? And there are both industries and organizations that are kind of responsible on the one side for trying to create and I suppose control it and on the other side industries that try and puncture it and then I suppose even other people that try and ride it. Yeah I mean for sure I I think where I wanted to get to with the book was not to kind of point the finger and say you know this is startups fault or this is advertisers fault or this is the government's fault or whatever I kind of wanted to try and put into context the role that hype plays for everyone so yes some people create it some people use it as a tool some people you know are fooled by it some people can see it in context you know and the argument I'm trying to make with the book is that hype is not something that should go away or is going to go away anyway, but it's something that we should be, frankly, just more aware of and more able to try and spot in practice. And, you know, also kind of see the good side of it too, as opposed to just bashing it off as this thing that only silly people, you know, fall for, which is, you know, it's funny. I did about 60 interviews for for the book and the vast majority of these interviews were with, you know, experts in the particular areas that I focus on for each chapter. But I, you know, I asked most of them at the end, you know, if I just say the word hype to you, what does it mean? And most of the answers were, oh, it's this annoying thing that gets in my way, or it's this annoying thing that has people thinking the wrong thing and da 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 da. And I was like, but at the end of the day, you you also have to use it in practice, otherwise no one will hear you. So it's it's this kind of, I suppose, fuel that sometimes isn't 
very well thought of and is also not well considered. And that's from everyone's perspective. I think everyone has a better response. Everyone has a responsibility to try and wield it better, understand it better. You know, I was speaking on a, a panel um, at Slush, the big um, conference in Helsinki last year, and it was a it was a panel about the role media has in deep tech, which anyone who doesn't know is kind of the areas of te- technology that's very IP heavy, like biotech and quantum computing, the areas that I'm most interested in. And I was the only representative of the media on the panel, so I felt slightly attacked. But um, I, you know, I said at one point, I said, "This is not just the responsibility of journalists to try and, you know, read press releases better, or ask better questions. It's also the responsibility of companies to be like, is it responsible for us to make this claim right now in the current context, or is it responsible for us to use?" this word or this narrative or or whatever you know i mean i had a, I had a press release recently which really captured my attention where they talked about they used the analogy of a water pistol and i thought it was it was really interesting this technology i was like, oh it's kind of like a water pistol that's exciting and interesting i want to hear more about that and then when i interviewed them they were like yeah it's not like a water pistol at all and i was like well that that's just kind of like lying that's that's not you know you have to be more responsible about what words you use and you know not to you know be immodest but other people might not have asked for clarification on that and then that's how misinformation happens so i think it's it's not just about saying pointing the finger and saying you know advertisers and the media and da, 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 da. it's about all of us you know being slightly more critical and and also slightly more shall we say um generous when you do see you know narratives like that and go oh, at the end of the day they, these people are trying to do this thing and I do have to try and see it in context as opposed to just being horrified by this ridiculous water pistol analogy that's not even true you know and, and see past that and go okay well what is it is it still interesting is it something that still is worthy of being talked about um so yeah I suppose that's what I'm trying to advocate for and this kind of nuanced position that you kind of arrived at for hype comes through quite clearly in the kind of next section that you you look at cures for cancer doesn't it because you can kind of both see how it's something which can kind of give false hope to patients and and even kind of um, massively um kind of wasteful uh kind of decisions by doctors but also is in i, I get the sense in some sense required you see it as being something which can kind of propel drugs on that very expensive long journey from lab through to um, actual use sure and you need people to vote for funding at the end of the day so in that chapter the sort of each chapter has a kind of I don't want to say a how-to because it's not a how-to book but the the sort of uh words of that chapter is hype is double-edged sword and it's exactly that I say that you know we need to use narratives like we will find a cure for cancer or, we will fight cancer these kind of war and battle-based narratives which have you know we know have bad repercussions in terms of some for some patients kind of creating a sense of guilt if they don't win or whatever but at the same time we also need these narratives to get people to donate to cancer research uk or to get politicians to listen up when a researcher says we are working on this thing and we really need the money for it but then on the other hand you see researchers putting cancer in grant applications that don't really have that much to do with cancer but they know if they put cancer in it they'll get money for instance that's the kind of open secret within the sort of biology world and as you alluded to there's also issues around if you just say oh this person's working on cancer there can be a lack of criticism or questioning around okay but what are you actually doing because it's this you know cancer something we should all 
sort of unilaterally support and we shouldn't question. Um, and you, you see people, you, you, there's, there's lots of really interesting people out there who are trying to raise their voice and try to say, actually, maybe there's a different way. Maybe we should rethink how we fund this. Maybe we should rethink the, the kind of narratives that are said, particularly around, you know, immunotherapies, for instance. So it, it's, it's a difficult one where, you know, human lives are at stake. It's, it was much easier to write about hype and, you know, the quantum cu- computing chapter or, or, you know, the, the search for extraterrestrial life. When you're talking about cancer, where, you know, a vast majority of people who will read my book will have some personal experience with cancer, whether it's themselves or family or a friend. So talking about the emotions that narratives have and how sometimes we can, quote unquote, fall for narratives because of the emotions we have is quite a tricky subject when you're talking about, well, yeah, you know, I know someone who died, particularly as well, because one of the things I talk about is how do you essentially work out whether a drug or a therapy is is worth trying which is obviously something that you know the medical industry has to think about all the time so if something is only proven to give someone three months you know I would argue that's probably not worth half a million pounds or whatever investment whereas if it's your mum you're like well yeah it is three months is is worthy so I I think the that's the point I want to make about hype in these in this chapter is that it can prevent us from having very difficult conversations because of the emotions that are inherent in some of these narratives and because at the end of the day we need the emotions and narratives in order to continue to get support for something that is really important so it's kind of it's quite a tricky subject when it comes to you know emotions that are valid shall we say do, do you think you, you might perhaps have given hype a bit too of a softer run especially when looking at cancer it's just do you think that from the chapter i think i'm quite harsh <laughs> so, so what's what's the difference between hype and 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 kind of and passionate engagement but by, by which i mean you know do we do we need hype in an area such as cancer do you think wouldn't people still be giving money wouldn't people still be excited about about genuinely exciting therapies if we were to take kind of drain hype out of the discussion around cures for cancer um yes and no a lot of people argue we don't give enough to to uh, to cancer research i mean if if you split cancer up as we should be doing it's another thing that i say in the book we shouldn't just be using the word cancer to encapsulate all these different diseases you know if you look at things like uh, cancers related to the brain they get a tiny amount of of investment versus cancers related to breasts for instance so you could argue that hype is still required to try and cut through and and get important messages out to people on the other hand i do think that i think we're what we're lacking in the cancer therapeutics world is critical discussion outside of, you know, formal circles. Like, you know, if you look at the idea of, you know, if the UK government turns that they're not going to fund a certain type of therapy that is good for lung cancer that the US is, you get a whole load of pushback from the public going, but the US are doing this. Why are we not funding it? Uh, the NHS should have enough money, da, 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 da. And we, we're not being brave and going, guys, it doesn't work. And we need to have frank discussions about, you know, human life and, you know, could we use that money for something else and so on and so forth. It's like, it's sort of taboo to talk about these sorts of things. And so in that sense, I, you know, I I feel that the way we talk about cancer is really, really bad. And I I hope I make that, I, I try to make that as clear as possible in the, in the chapter and say that, you know, at the end of the day, things like using surrogate markers in clinical trials is really problematic and we don't talk about it enough. You know, we need to do it at the end of the day. We need to use surrogate markers because we can't wait 10 years for a trial to see if someone is still alive after 10 years. That's obviously really inefficient. But at the same time, if we don't do follow-up trials, which a lot of time we don't, 
then we're putting things onto the market that are not necessarily well tested or trialed or confirmed. And there are people out there making these arguments, but they're not being heard by the general populace. They're, they're kept in these particular kind of circles. And I would argue it's from a lack of bravery of narrative. It's this keeping relying on, you know, we must battle cancer. Cancer is bad. Da, 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 da. And it is, of course it is. But at the same time, so are many things in life. And, you know, we need to find better ways of talking about how to advance how we work in this space. I don't think cancer therapeutics gets anything like as much criticism or discussion as other areas of technology, even though in some sense it's one of the more important areas of science. And I think a lot of that is to do with this emotion-based narratives that maybe you think I've been soft. I think I was being quite harsh, but then <laughs> I uh, I think that's one of the chapters that I think was harder for people to read. And I was very conscious of that. No, and 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 of course, it's kind of extremely sensitive, of course, to the to the subject matter. But do, do you think it kind of t- touches on this again? Like, as you you struggle with this kind of paradox of of kind of hype being both in some senses useful and and destructive. You know, a kind of I suppose an appropriately subtle and nuanced conclusion for a book, which is all about subtlety and nuance being too often um, absent in these kinds of discussions. <laughs> um, were, were there areas? Either in either in cancer therapeutics or elsewhere, where you saw there were kind of like you know um, genuinely useful, evidentially strong treatments, which kind of only got to where they could get to because of hype. You know, they were kind of in a, in a weird in a weird way they were propelled forward yeah. because of hype, even though they didn't actually really need it. Yeah, so I actually talk about this this idea of sort of self fulfilling prophecy that hype can create, um, particularly in the quantum computing chapter, where. We have this uh, example of the company called D-Wave that massively used hype and verged on misinformation in their early days, talking about creating a quantum computer with X many qubits and so on and so forth. And a lot of people jumped onto that and was like, wow, they're the first people who've managed to do this many hundred qubits, this many thousand qubits and so on and so forth before we started having critical discussions around, well, actually, it's quite hard to do this and IBM only have 50 or whatever. They were already at over 2000 by that point. And... There was a that hype that they used in order to get a lot of funding, a lot of interest, a lot of orders, actual orders of quantum computers from various different kinds of companies. When those orders were made and when that money was put in, that it wasn't a useful computer. They ran tests and it wasn't doing what it needed to do or even what they were claiming it would do. But after a long time and a lot of investment, a lot of research that was able to be done as a result of that hype, they now have something which actually is useful in very specific ways and so there's a sort of arguments we made that's like well now we do actually have this useful piece of technology that we didn't have before and i'm not i'm not convinced that d-wave would have got all that investment or you know in, interest or early orders or whatever had they not used the tactics that they used in their their early days at the same time i my gut is is kind of saying, well, actually, there's an opportunity cost here. What about all the other companies that could have had that investment or other things that could have, you know, had that money or that interest that was lost out as a result of verging on misinformation? So, you know, I, I yes, I do kind of, I don't say I necessarily struggle with the, the sort of paradox, is hype good or bad? It's more, I think if we keep asking the question, is hype good or bad? That's problematic. We need to say actually no hype is a tool and the way that it's utilized is sometimes good and sometimes bad depending on how you utilize it so i i think the d-wave d-wave was wrong it's a company that i think was irresponsible but that's an opinion at the end of the day not a 
a fact or not. The fact is they now have technology, which is much better than it was five years ago. And I would say a lot of that is fueled by hype. Look at VR. I think VR as an industry has benefited hugely from excitement and consumer demand and, and so on and so forth that has come from you know, the way we talked about it, even when it was quite a rubbish technology and quite a useless technology and expensive technology, one that you couldn't really get in your homes immediately, but it was talked about like it was. So it's this difficult thing because it you know it comes back to, do you think it's worthwhile as an individual? Do you think the world needs this? Do you think the world would be better as a result? And sometimes I think that yeah, hype is a sort of necessary evil in order to get things to market. And other times I think, do we really need VR? No. So I don't think it's useful there. I think it's a sort of a tool that's been used to wield something that's pointless. But that comes back to opinion. So I think kind of trying to wrestle with is hype good or bad, is, 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 is that's the sort of surface question. The question is really, do we need this? And do we have, how are we wielding our responsibility and pushing certain technologies forward and others not well uh now it's time for a uh, quick break and when we're back we will do exactly as Gemma says and and, and look at tool as a uh, look at hype as a tool and try and understand a bit more about what it's actually doing to society and and all of us Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone, welcome back. Gemma, 
let's soar above society as tiny birds looking down for a second and 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 try and get a kind of much broader view on on hype across all the different brilliant examples that you you raise in your book is it it, could we think of hype like a you described it as a fuel could we think of it like, like a kind of social force then which kind of structures society and moves capital yeah. around and massages public sentiment yeah I, I actually originally was thinking about it as a sort of uh, invisible force or something I was trying to think of all the different kind of um things that make things happen in the world shall we shall we say so you know money laws you know invention need you know like if you were to try to list out all of the sort of factors that push things in certain ways I think hype is one of those and it's one that we just don't think about as much but it's very very powerful and it plays, you know, it's powerful in many different ways in the same way that money is powerful in, very, in, in many different ways. It has, you know, in, this, in the same way that money has a very unique sort of, shall we say, force behind it. Hype has a unique kind of force behind it. For some people, it's emotional. For some people, it's logical. For, you know, so on and so forth. Sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes it's not. So that's kind of, I suppose, where I was originally putting it. And I think that it, that is probably where it's still, I don't actually, I don't think I actually use that phrase in the book anywhere. Not because I've stopped believing it, but I think I kind of, I wasn't sure how useful that as a term was, but in the back of my mind, that's kind of how I see it. I suppose as a liquid or a, um, I don't know, little pit bulls here and there pushing against things. Or <laughs> um, I love I'm that image, sure. little pit hype pit bulls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's I don't know. It's it's interesting. I think while I was writing the book, and I'm, I mean, you you'll know this from from writing your book yourself, like. You go into these kind of strange um, uh, thinking clouds, shall we say, where you yourself are trying to go much deeper into the topic than actually you ever are going to go in the book because it's not really that useful to be that sort of, I don't know, philosophical, shall we say. And a lot of the time I was trying to get to the crux of not just what hype was, but what the point of the book was. And at one point I was I was thinking about this idea of um, theoretical minimum which um, awkwardly I've forgotten the author of the book that wrote it, but basically it's a book about how do you learn physics? What is the theoretical minimum that you need to know in order to jump off and learn physics? So if you were to sort of reduce all of physics down to a few sort of nodes of information, what would they be that then allow the individual to do their own work, whether it's just reading headlines or whether it's going off and being a researcher, right? And I was trying to think about all the different areas that I write about what are the minimal pieces of information that you need to know, or rather, what are the minimal questions you need to ask in order to not just understand it, but to critically analyze? And again, that's just whether you want to read a headline or whether you want to, you know, go and be a researcher or go and be a politician or a policymaker or whatever that's, you know, much, much deeper. And I, I suppose I was trying to frame hype as this thing that kind of swirls around the nodes. So if you have all these sort of, if you sort of imagine all the pieces of information as these nodes in a graph and then all the lines and the white space around it is this kind of the hype and the hype nudges you in certain ways and makes you kind of look at one node when maybe you should be looking at another. Um, and it's being conscious of that as well as the sort of knows himself does that make sense i know that's very kind of high level but no ab- no it absolutely does yeah and and like many kind of invisible forces you know very hard to find exactly the right kind of metaphor to use sometimes liquid sometimes yes. wool sometimes like a slope 
But, you know, absolutely, yeah. It's something like an invisible hand, I suppose, in the kind of Adam Smith sense is, you know, yeah. kind, of, kind of gently guiding our lives and shaping our lives in various ways. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, though, even the, the, the idea of smoke and mirrors, I spent ages being like, is it really like magic? And what about intent? And, you know, magician is very deliberate and they're not deliberate and you're consenting, but you're not. And, and I don't know, I think you... I, I tried not to get too caught up in in that and rather try and turn it around and say, okay, what is it we need to know about this? How do we handle this strange force that we don't really fully understand all the time? What do we, you know, in our day-to-day lives, how can we try and move forward with, you know, what knowledge is going to help us move forward? And that's what I try and get across in the different chapters. And also, you know, the approach I take in each chapter, which is slightly different for each one, because I didn't want to just be repeating myself. I wanted to be like, okay, let's look at hype from a slightly different perspective, uh, you know, with respect to batteries or fusion or the space commercialization uh, industry. And the idea is, is that you can use any of those tools or perspectives or whatever, regardless of what you look at. You know, I, I chose the technologies because they're ones I'm interested in. I think they're ones that do have intriguing elements of hype in it. But realistically, you could you could point at it anything really that was that was the purpose of the book I didn't want to just lecture people on certain areas of tech and science first of all you get a very out of date book very quickly doing that but also it's not really that useful if you're not interested in those particular areas. Do you think hype kind of travels along the kind of same trajectory as kind of complexity I mean in in the sense that kind of you know with critical thinking skills and we are about to come to your your suggestions for how people can respond to it but but they are kind of in a sense reliant on our kind of autodidacticism are they in a way you know to to kind of equip us to mm. to kind of personally begin to sort and and make decisions about what is important and less important i suppose hype kind of flourishes in areas where people believe or tend to believe people telling them whether something is important or not do you think in a, yes. in a world that yeah, just becomes absolutely. more complex, this is just almost an inevitability? Y- yes, exactly. And, you know, if I was to, you know, make the case for the importance of my book, you know, that that's part of it. Because I think that we're, we're getting, uh, tech and science now is, we talk a lot about this, this idea that we're getting more and more and more specific. If you do a PhD in something, you're an expert in that, but you don't necessarily know much about something alongside it, right? Because you've, you've got so, so specific and you always hear these kind of, this sort of, uh, shall we say, anecdote where it's, you know, scientists used to do everything and then they became biologists, chemists and, 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 uh, uh, physicists and then they became you know biophysicists and then they became you know biophysics with a focus on drosophila you know and it, it kind of got more and more specific and we don't necessarily p- promote we talk a lot about the idea of cross-disciplinary but we don't necessarily always promote it and fund it and support it whether that's in education or in, in the way that research is done so in a world that is getting more and more and more specific in each of its individual bits how on earth are you meant to tie together various different pieces of information and for me one of the arguments I make in the book is that you know knowing science itself isn't enough it's not enough to be an expert in fusion energy because you're a researcher looking at I don't know a particular type of technology that fuels it whatever you also need to understand 
to some degree the laws around it and you also need to understand to some degree how the energy system works and you also need to understand to some degree what it really means for individuals to use energy you know there's so much more to understanding science than to understanding the nitty-gritty of how the technology works but we a lot of the time when we talk about science and tech it's a, there's a huge focus on like this scientist has written this paper and they have discovered this thing and there's a lack of context around okay well is it coming to market if it comes to market what does it mean do we have to build a new factory what does that mean for jobs you know there's I think sometimes we kind of miss out all of that when we talk about these super super complex things um and so yeah hype is the shortcut it's the thing that people use to try and best explain what they're doing or get people to think is amazing or or even you know individuals when they're trying to tell their friends why they were interested in an article you know it's, it's a thing we use to to quickly get people on board with something that's not always the easiest to explain and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that but where it becomes wrong is when the wrong information is then taken in on the other side and you can't always control it but we can do a better job of doing that both as communicators and as people being communicated to I've thought exactly the same as you in the kind of allied field of conspiracy theorizing and, and gone on kind of a, it mm. sounds like kind of a strangely similar journey of kind of beginning with conspiracy theories, you know, causing a huge amount of kind of frustrate, bewilderment, I suppose, into frustration. And then over time, kind of gently kind of acclimatizing myself to them in a way and kind of realizing that, that it sounds like in a similar way to hype, they are kind of inextricably and inalienably human things or, or human reactions yes. to, to worlds which are cold, bewildering, complex and quite scary in all of their uh, variety and, uh, and, um, and difficulty to understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I put uh, there's a little bit in the conclusion of the book that I'm talking about um, critical thinking, which is, I suppose, is the, it sounds like a basic, a basic thing to say, but it's the answer to all of this, which I know we'll talk a bit about. But I, I sort of say the difference between people who are good at critical thinking or practice critical thinking or is, are seen as intelligent by others and those who feel that they don't get it, couldn't possibly you know, work out complexity and blah, blah, blah. The difference between these two groups is that one is okay with you know, a tsunami of information in front of them, getting into their tiny little dinghy and somehow trying to weather this tsunami of information, get the little paddle out and try and make sense of it furiously. And it doesn't mean that they find it easy. It doesn't mean that they don't find it confusing or frustrating or whatever, but they're they're willing to jump in and go, all right, okay, let's try and make sense of this. And the others are, are scared and don't and think that they're not able, don't believe that they have the ability or, or the bravery or whatever it is to jump in. I mean, I studied maths at university and, you know, the, every time I tell people that I have one of two responses, you either have someone go, oh my God, me too. I love maths. And then we have this really nerdy discussion about why pi is amazing. And then the other option is the person goes, oh my God, I was terrible at maths at school. Oh my God, you must be so intelligent. I can't believe you have a maths degree. Da, 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 da. And it's it's quite heartbreaking actually seeing the second one because, you know, you're, this is, you know, this is like a, a human rights lawyer or, you know, the, the hairdresser or whoever. It's people who are experts in certain areas who are, it, everyone is intelligent in their own way, but it's that sort of sense of fear or, oh I couldn't I couldn't possibly do that and I'm like no I just happened to have a granddad and a dad who really like maths and so I was excited by it and I didn't get put off at a young age and then I 
dove into it and I happen to have a bit of natural you know cleverness around it but so I think if you start extending that out across the idea of complexity or difficult topics or you know you've a lot of people oh I don't understand the stock market oh I don't understand politics it's like yeah near do I I don't understand them but I'm willing to try and read some stuff about it and work out the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns and all these sorts of things and try and build my own sort of map of information as best I can and I mean that that's the job of a researcher it's the job of a journalist but I don't think we sort of hold that up as something that all of us should should do has a responsibility to do but also it's a fun thing to do it's interesting it's empowering it's a better way to go about seeing the world in my opinion I think it's it's much more exciting to try and understand how the world works than to have the world work to you and feel fearful around it at the same time you know well let's let's take that idea of empowerment and leap straight back then to the present day to see how how we can uh, leave people feeling a bit more empowered because there is no escaping it unfortunately we are back to dealing with that um, colossal elephant that's actually just outside of most people's rooms rather than inside um, but uh, but coronavirus F- first off could could you kind of cr- kind of draw us a kind of um verbal hype map that you see related to coronavirus? What, what, what kinds of hype are people possibly going to confront now? And what, what do you think is, is hype going to look like in the kind of middle and then kind of long distance as, as the kind of lockdown continues and the, oh you know, the reaction continues? Gosh, that's a, that's a big question. Well, I think that there's corners of the internet and media now, and it's becoming more mainstream, this idea of shall we be contrarian about this um, and sort of saying, actually, we need to get everyone out there. This lockdown is the wrong decision. And, you know, seeing articles now starting to argue this in a way that's putting being put forward in a more considered manner, shall we say, but is still based on factual inaccuracies. Um, so there's one I saw recently that used the idea that only the elderly get it and you're like that <laughs> we now know that's not true so why are you using that as a basis of an argument but again you know you're building a really strong argument based on one idea and if you don't know that idea is false then the argument is extremely compelling so i'm starting to see that happen and i think because we've kind of got past the we all now know this is the reality even though it's still you know crazy to a lot of people and it's still very shocking I think there's a bit of a cadence of rhythm now that we have that's allowing for these slightly more critical but based on factual inaccuracy articles so that's one sort of area that I'm I'm personally that's the area I'm most concerned about I think I mean there's there's some you'll have seen the conspiracy stuff around you know was it deliberately made in a lab can 5g create it or what you know I think these areas are growing. I'm not, I still think it's, I don't, I'm not worried about them in the same way that I don't worry daily about conspiracy theories. Maybe you do more so than me because it's more your idea, but I sort of see it as, yes, it captures certain kinds of people. And that's obviously extremely unfortunate for me to do our best to try and debunk that. But the more we talk about the fact that people are talking about these conspiracy theories we're almost giving them life and um it's the same infuriating um, dynamic with disinformation yeah exactly i mean you look at look at look at um if we talk about anti-vaxxers i mean there, there was research done that says if you talk about a certain study that was done by a certain researcher beginning with the letter W <laughs> and, you know, related to a certain condition that begins with A. If you even just talk about it, you can 
actually help fuel the incorrect narrative. It's like repeatability. And so it's like, how do you confront these really difficult narratives that are incorrect with correct information without actually fueling them in the first place? So there's, there's a sort of, you know, do you give them oxygen or do you try and starve them of oxygen? Um, so that's another sort of area I think is kind of, I'm personally not as worried about, but I, I've seen it growing a little bit. And um, I think we need to be careful about how, as media, as people like myself, how do we kind of um, confront that, shall we say? And then I don't know. I mean, I think there's this sort of more mainstream area that I'm thinking a lot about is how is the government, which at the moment is the kind of main, shall we say, source of information. I feel like actually in some sense these you know, the the nightly updates or whatever is giving a bit of a rhythm to real information. So it's this idea of like, okay, well, that's when the real information comes out. The vagueness of this, whether you have a day that's super vague or a day that's a bit more actionable, I think has a massive impact on how people feel generally. And I think if you, if we start having vagueness in this, it's going to, I believe it will start having people not, not believe that they need to keep doing what they're doing, but start to become a little bit, oh yeah, no, we, we, we stayed in for this many weeks so we can go out now or we can do this, you know, without this kind of continued forcefulness of narrative. So it's kind of difficult to predict how things are going to go because they're changing day on day. One thing that I think we don't do enough about is humanize the numbers. So having this like daily ticker of deaths, I don't think that's having the impact that maybe it should. You know, the idea of 700 people dying in one day is becoming normal. In what way is that normal? And I'm not entirely sure it's having the, it's not instilling fear in as many people as maybe it should. And I'm curious about, you know, can we tell stories about people affected in different kind of ways that might instill different kind of personal actions? I don't know. But that's another area that I've been kind of looking at is how are we sharing these numbers how are we sharing the data? How are we contextualizing data? Not just so that it's understandable, but so that it's impactful. So those are the kind of areas that I'm sort of looking at, shall we say, in terms of a map of hype, if, if, if you will. <laughs> um, well, everyone, that was Gemma Milne, the author of um, the new and I think a brilliant book, Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening.